Bad Cops in God. We are in Acts chapter 21. We're working our way through books of the Bible. That's what we do here. It, I, I often will be preaching through books of the Bible. And um, one of the great things about that is it, it means that I, I come across topics and issues that I don't know if I was planning. I wasn't planning to speak on the topic that I'm speaking on today. It's just that I was studying and reflecting on these chapters in God's Word. This is what jumped out uh, through these chapters, at, at least to, to work through this theme. I don't think we need to be living with our heads in the sand, but over the last few years particularly, uh, we've seen uh, in our culture, particularly in the U.S., but even into Canada, we've seen the role of law enforcement spark controversies in various communities. While some communities, particularly in the United States, African-American communities, have always what, had what could, I mean, as charitably as I could describe it, as an uneasy relationship with government authorities, 2012, the shooting death of Trayon Martin was significant. I observed last week, there's been many ages of outrage. The only thing that's really different about the age of outrage we find ourselves in, possibly, the only thing that's really different is that the role of the internet and social media play in our age of rage. And the internet brings the rage home to many of us almost to an overwhelming degree. And after Trayvon, there was Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, and, and the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter became a movement and a polarizing one at that. And those who defended the authorities, those who defended the police as those who are trying to do an impossible job some employed the counter hashtag Blue Lives Matter, and thus lives were drawn in the sand. This all corresponded, you know, in the states with the rise of Donald Trump, who one of his promises in, in his pursuit to make America great again promised to restore law and order in American cities. And after his unlikely victory last fall, protests erupted in various American cities, sometimes engaging in violence even as we saw last month in Charlottesville between the alt-right and the Antifa, and if you don't know who these people are, well, that's great, wonderful. If you do, you know that it just seems we're in a tinderbox right now, and sometimes it seems that the anarchy has spilled over and is ruling on the streets. The U.S. right now is like a pot of water boiling on a stove, and sometimes that water splashes over here up into Canada. We can't just bury our heads in the sands as Canadians or as the church. The alt-right is here. Antifa is here. The anarchists, I've, I've, I've seen some of them here in our city. They're, they're here, and, and we're in Ottawa, so obviously the government is here. And I don't bring this up today to be sensational or to try to preach from newspapers. It's exactly the opposite. I didn't mean to have this be my message today. But I bring it up only to state that there are serious questions being asked today about the legitimacy of government to enforce laws and questions being raised today about the manner in which our governments, in particular, enforce the law. And as Christians, we not only live in a nation under the law, but we work with and go to school with and meet in coffee shops with people, some of whom defend the law, some of whom distrust the law and law enforcement, and some of whom detest the law. 
And if you're like me as a Christian and you find yourself at the workplace or at school or at the coffee shop in some of these conversations, I know sometimes my answer as a Christian and maybe your answer as a Christian is sometimes just, you know, I, I just try not to get involved in all that. And that's sometimes what we do. And so as I said, I had not really any attention in speaking on the topic this week, but as I reflected on our text today from Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23, I was struck by how central to the story the role of law enforcement plays in these chapters. As the Apostle Paul, this is an illustration of the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Paul finds himself at the mercy of forces he can't control. One man in particular, this man who's named in, in chapter 23, his name is Claudius Lysias. He is the Roman tribune. And he plays a prominent role over these three chapters that Paul's in Jerusalem. And it's actually this man, Claudius Lysias, who actually, through his intervention in Paul's life, protects him from the mob in Jerusalem, moves him to Caesarea where he can give defense of his faith in front of kings, and then ultimately through that leaves Paul to Rome. This tribune, Claudius Lysias, basically is a stand-in for the entire Roman law enforcement system. He's like... I don't know, he's like the chief of police, or as an American, I'd see him as like some, somebody who works for the Bureau of FBI. Maybe in Canada, he'd be like, uh, what do you guys have in Canada? RCMP. So the chief guy of the RCMP. But the basic takeaway from these two chapters, and, and more, even starting in, in chapter 21, the basic takeaway is this, that God preserves the Apostle Paul and sends him to complete his mission through the Roman justice system. And, and we need to be clear that that's the point. We don't want to miss it. And in fact, in the middle of all this tale of this three chapters where, where Claudius Lysias is involved, and, and listen, in the book of Acts, three chapters to have one man feature prominently in three chapters in the book of Acts is significant. And smack in the middle of these three chapters after Paul has defended himself against the Jewish high council, and before Paul is moved to Caesarea, where he'll defend himself before the governor and then the king, in the middle of this, at the exact center of this, and Luke employs literary devices to focus on the center, Paul is in prison and he's visited by Jesus himself, appears to Paul, and says to him this, and you can see here in Acts 23, verse 10, you see, um, you see Claudius Lysias' involvement in preserving Paul, but then we realize it is actually Jesus who is working behind the scenes. And so he says in verse 20, uh, he, he, Luke writes for us, when the dissension became violent, that's after Paul's, as Paul's speaking to the Jewish high council, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, as Paul's imprisoned and chained in the barracks, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. And that's central, and we have to see that as central. It's Jesus who is directing Paul and moving Paul to Rome 
but this is unlike previous missionary calls. This is, this is not like in Antioch when Paul and the prophets are gathered around, you know, seeking and fasting over God's will, and they hear the Holy Spirit say, send Paul out and Barnabas out to the work I've called them. This is unlike at Troas where Paul is praying and he, 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 every door has been closed and then God gives him a vision of the Macedonian who says, come here. But it's unlike that where Paul then voluntarily responds to the call of God, to the next place he is to go. Jesus is directing Paul and revealing to Paul where he will go, but Paul is actually at this point in prison and at the mercy of the Roman judicial system. Now, Paul's not completely passive in these chapters. He, he, he's not passive in this. He defends himself five times in various different trials. He defends himself, gives him a defense. He knows his rights. He, he, he knows and, and claims his rights as a Roman citizen. He, he makes his way through a court of appeals and appeals even to Caesar. And so he takes advantage of the rights and privileges that, 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 that he's afforded. But there's something in this text, these three chapters of the book of Acts, that would require us as Christians to at least explore the relationship between our justice systems, God's will, and the Christian. Particularly important for us as we live in this day of rage. And so really there's just two principles that we're going to be looking at today as we... And then I'm going to bring things out through... It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read the entire three chapters. I'll give that to you as homework. And I'll put these notes online so you can go home and study the chapters for yourself. But the first principle that we would have would be a principle that is often emphasized by those who would defend the rule of law and of law enforcement to, uh, in our culture even today. The first principle would be this. Law enforcement is an instrument of God to protect the weak, to preserve order, and to punish the wicked. Sorry, this is not going to be so much of a preaching I'll get to preaching at the end. It's a little bit of laying down some teaching and principles from the New Testament. The first principle we find in this passage and the New Testament is that law enforcement is an instrument of God's providence to guard against anarchy, the lawless mob, and to protect the weak. We, we first meet this tribune in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 1 and flip, flip with me to Acts chapter 21. We first meet this tribune, Claudius Lysias, in Acts 21-31 after Paul's been already dragged out by the mob out of the temple seeking to kill him. And look at how quickly Claudius and his men arrive on the scene. It says this in Acts 21.30. says, Then all the city was stirred up and all the people ran together. They seized Paul. Now, just a highlight. Well, this is what happened. We talked about it last week. Paul had actually uh, on, on, taken the advice of some of the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He had taken four Jewish men up to the temple and, and, and actually sponsored them as they made their Nazarite vows at the temple. As Paul was there making his way to and from the temple, uh, he was seen, and some evil men stirred up the crowd against him and, and slandered him and said, uh, and said, this man has been taking Gentiles into the temple, which was against the law. And that's where this crowd has come from. That's where this mob has come from. And so the whole city is stirred up, Acts 21, verse 30. The whole city stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Man, these guys got on the scene pretty quickly. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. 
He inquired who he was and what he had done. Now some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him! The lawless mob had taken their vengeance into their own hands by the time that Claudius Lysias already got on the scene. This was complete anarchy. They were already beating Paul to death when they arrived. They literally had to arrest Paul just to protect him, to keep him safe from the violence and the anarchy of the crowd. And, and this is not the only time in these chapters, we, we already read in chapter 33, where Claudius Lysias has to intervene to protect Paul from the mob. And we noted last week that this violence is deeply, the, the violence that we see on display in this crowd is deeply rooted in the heart of humanity. Violence is deeply rooted in mankind's hearts. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I can show you in the scripture. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't yet take the authority of scripture as, you haven't yet bowed to the authority of scripture, I pray that you will, but I can show you through history the simple fact that violence is deeply rooted in the heart of man. Start, starting with the scripture, violence is depicted in the Bible as early as the first two sons after Eden, as, as Cain slew Abel because his deeds were righteous and his were wicked. In the days of Noah, it's said that the earth was filled with violence. Moses, and I'm walking through, some of you guys who are in my Sunday school class, walking through the storyline of the Bible. The Bible is a violent storyline. Moses his first attempt and his first failed attempt at delivering the people of Israel from slavery was, his first attempt was to incite a violent rebellion. As he intervenes and he killed the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew slave and went to his countrymen and said, all right, rise up with me. And then they said to him, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? After taking the land of Canaan, the nation of Israel devolved into violent anarchy in the book of Judges as Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Atheists, atheists will tell us today, they'll say, man, the Bible is just a book filled with violence. And they mean that as a critique of the Christian faith. And I, I say, yes. The Bible is a book filled with violence because the Bible is detailing the human heart which is filled with violence. The Bible, in part, is detailing God's case against the violence and the hatred in the heart of man. But you can see this outside of the Bible. Look at the last century. The last century was supposed to be the most enlightened, the most educated century of human history. Yet we killed more in war than the previous centuries combined. We killed more through famine of failed government policies than the remaining centuries combined. We martyred Christians at a rate higher than any other previous century combined. It seems that out for all of our enlightenment and all of our education, we are not able to escape the violence that runs deep in the heart of man. And thus, it's part of God's providential mercy that he institutes governments to guard against the violent tendency of our hearts that is expressed whenever we are left to our own devices through anarchy. 
This is the Christian position, that God has instituted governing authorities, legal systems, and law enforcement to do three things, to protect the weak, to preserve the order, and to punish the wicked. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. This is the main teaching text. The Apostle Paul writes this. Even as he's experiencing it in, in, in Acts, he's writing it in Romans, where he says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? And we see in these chapters in the book of Acts how God is using this government man, this law enforcement officer, Claudius Lysias, to preserve the apostle Paul and through the Roman system of justice. And, and justice is preserved in this chapter. We're going to look at through some of it quickly. Justice. Justice is preserved in this chapter through four ways. First, justice is I'm going to look at that one. First, justice is preserved through investigation. In Acts chapter 21, this is what happens after he arrests Paul. Acts chapter 21, verse 33, it says, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done, and some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and because he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he orders him to be brought into the barracks. He then later in the chapter, actually chapter 22, he, Claudius Lysias, calls the, the Jewish Sanhedrin to order so he can know for certain, so he can investigate completely exactly what are their, what's their problem with Paul, what are their charges they're bringing against him. And so justice is preserved through this investigation and partly uh, chapter 21 and into chapter 22 is this man, this law enforcement officer of the Roman system, making an investigation into what exactly, who is Paul, and what is he supposed to have done. Justice is preserved through investigation. We see justice in these chapters being preserved through trial. In these four chapters, Acts 22 to 25, and we'll look at it a little bit more next week, but Paul's given no less than five different opportunities to speak to his accusers and to make a defense of himself. He first does it in Acts chapter 22 when he speaks directly to the crowd and he speaks to the crowd in Hebrew and he says to them, basically he says, I am a Jew, I was brought up Jewish, I was brought up, I was, I was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem. I, was, I, I studied under the famous teachers, I was zealous for the law, I was advancing in Judaism far beyond my contemporaries. I was just like you and then Jesus met me and he changed me and he called me just like Jesus, just like, just like Yahweh called Isaiah in the Old Testament and told him to preach the unpopular message that, that the people's hearts would be hardened. That's what Jesus did to me. And he met me. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And so I went back into Jerusalem with that message to you, my countrymen, saying, the Messiah has come. Put your hope in Christ. And you ran me out of the city. And then Jesus appeared to me and said, go to the Gentiles. And that's when the crowd lost it again. So Paul makes an offense at Jerusalem in front of his accusers. When Claudius Lysias brings him for like a preliminary hearing in front of the Sanhedrin, Paul talks and speaks and gives a defense to himself in front of the leaders of the Jewish nation. In chapter 23, he's moved to Caesarea where he gives his defense of himself not only to one governor, 
But then he's in prison for so long, another governor comes into term. He makes a defense of himself to a second governor, and ultimately he makes a defense of himself to the king of the entire region. And so justice is being preserved in this chapter as Paul's being able to make defense of himself through these trials. Justice is preserved in these chapters. And I don't know if these are the only ways justice is preserved and governments use to preserve justice. There's some that come out through these chapters. Justice is preserved through transfer. Uh, this is a cool story, and I don't have time to read the whole thing, but basically what happens is as Paul's in prison, there is a plot among the Jews to assassinate him as he's going to be moved from the barracks to, to where he goes back to the Sanhedrin. And, and the, the, the tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, hears of this plot to assassinate Paul, and Claudius Lysias has Paul in his protective custody, and so what he does is he realizes he can't send Paul back to the Sanhedrin he's going to be, so he moves him into a different part of the jurisdiction. He moves him to Caesarea, and actually what he does is he sends Paul with 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen in his escort as he moves him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And so Claudius Lysias is preserving justice. He's protecting those who are in his care through transferring out of the violence. And finally, through appeal. In Acts chapter 25, when Paul's making his appeal and his defense of himself in front of the king Agrippa, and Agrippa's asking him, what have you done? Paul makes appeal to a higher court. He says in Acts 25, verse 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. They're saying, well, we'll send you back to Jerusalem again. You can make your defense there. And Paul says, no, I ain't going back to Jerusalem. I'm standing in front of Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me back up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. And so justice is preserved. Justice is preserved through investigation, through trial, through transfer, through, through, through the levels of the court of appeals. And I think as we, before we go to the next point, I think we should take a moment and just thank the Lord for the, that we live in a country that seeks to operate under a rule of law that protects the weak, that guards against lawlessness, and that punishes wickedness. As Canadians and as residents in Canada, we enjoy many rights that ensure that most disputes will be investigated that we would have our day in court to, to make our defense, that when we are under police or custody of the state, we're relatively safe and have our rights protected, and that we have a system of appeals that goes up through the court system. Uh, many in the world do not have such things. Today, uh, I was talking to another pastor today. We just talked last night. We said, what are you preaching on today? I was talking to Jason from Celebration Church down the road, Jason Byers, and he was saying, well, I'm preaching today uh, on a specific text because to tomorrow is the International Day of Freedom. And I was like, well, what's that? And it's an organization that works for, um, for justice, to promote justice and just systems of government around the world. And today is the National Day of Freedom. I said, well, I'm not, I had no idea that today was that day, but that's what I'm preaching on. <laughs> like, we, we are blessed in Canada to have a government that, to a degree, 
is seeking to enact just law in just ways, but many in this world do not have such things. And it's because of our second point. Uh, the second point is that the first point is that God has instituted government to preserve justice. Our second point is that law enforcement systems that governments come up with are corrupted by the depravity of man. God, in his providence, has instituted systems of government and law enforcement. But those systems are enacted and executed by us. And we looked at last fall, and we preach a lot about here, this idea of this doctrine of total depravity, that sin touches and taints every part of the human experience. And as sin touches and taints every part of the human experience, it, it touches and taints all the systems that we enact and we execute. There's only been one system of government that the Lord not only, init, uh, not only uh, instituted, but also enacted, which was Israel. Right? He, he enacted Israel's law, but it was still executed by sinful people whose hearts were turning them away to God and turning them into injustice. And so Israel, even though it was enacted by God, still was corrupted by the sinful heart of man. And we see this here in these chapters. Even though Paul, even though for the most part Luke is putting a spotlight on this man, Claudius Lysias, and for the most part he's a good and noble, he's good at his job, he's, he's trying to investigate and do all these things to, to preserve justice, he's still a, a man and, and there's still wickedness and corruption that has entered into the system. And so after Paul gives his... Um, after Paul is, uh, is arrested by him, after he speaks to the crowd, Acts chapter 22, verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they are shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul says to the centurion who is standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. The tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship with a large sum. And Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We see in the tribune's response to the chaos of the crowd that law enforcement and human systems of justice are always corrupted by human sin. One, one of the ways uh, that we see this is that just the very fact that what is legal is not necessarily what is moral. <laughs> Claudius Lysias' first impulse is to beat the truth out of Paul is to beat a confession out of Paul. There's a, there's a euphemism here in verse uh, 24. Do you see it? A euphemism. It's a pleasant way of saying something very ugly. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Examined by flogging is a good euphemism for what this actually is, which is torture. Romans flogging employed this is the same flogging that Jesus endured at the hands of Pontius Pilate, Roman flogging, used what was called a cat and nine tails, which was a leather whip with many different, um, you know, things on it. I don't know what those are called. Tied into it would have been pieces of pottery and glass and stone. 
as they whipped across the back, these things would dig into your back and then pull out the skin. It was excruciating. So, so this idea of, oh, we, we, we will just examine him by flogging is a nice way to say we will torture him until he confesses to something. Now notice that up until the point that Paul declares that he's a Roman citizen, it seems that this violent torture would have been a legal means of extracting information or confession from a suspect. I read some articles this week on Roman torture, and they were not pleasant, and I won't get into them. But this was a common practice. It was called extraction torture. It was torturing someone until you got the information and the confession. Now, this is forbidden in Jewish law. This is forbidden in the government that God enacted in the Old Testament because in, under Jewish law, under the moral law that God has revealed, you weren't allowed to condemn yourself. All testimony had to be established by two or three witnesses. And so this type of extraction torture is, in its very nature, immoral. But under Roman law, it was legal. And that's one of the things we have to understand as we look at systems of law and we we don't, we don't just simply defend them, but we also distrust them, is that sometimes we, the, the, the law as it is, is it, things may be legal that may not be moral. For example, something can be legal but immoral. Obviously, things like abortion is legal in our country, not moral. Many forms of lying and slander are legal. It's, it's not illegal to tell a lie in certain contexts. It is immoral. Things like the age of consent are raised and lowered in Canada on a legal level, but it's not as if they're raising age of consent in God's eyes, changing anything about them on a moral level. Something can be legal but immoral, torture. Something can be illegal but moral. For example, preaching the gospel in a place where the gospel is outlawed. And we need to be very careful that we don't just, as Christians, simply equate the two. It's important that we make a distinction that the legal status of an act may change. Next year, at some point, we're legalizing pot, right, in Canada. Right, that, that's a legal decision. That legal decision has no bear, bearing on whether or not this immoral act. The two are not necessarily connected. We can, we can go through Canada law by Canada law, and you can understand that, that just changing the legal designation of an act does not change the moral quality of an act. And because sin, because our sin as human beings has touches and tainted every part of government and law enforcement, we need to be very careful as Christians that we don't simply equate the two. Secondly, we see that law of enforcement is not necessarily applied equally. Right, Paul asked the man, is it lawful to flog a Roman citizen, which ultimately prevents the tribune from torturing him? But look at the conversation more closely. The tribune is surprised that Paul's a Roman citizen. Like, he's ready to, it says, while Paul is stretched out on the rack, you know, he's ready, they're ready to go. And then Paul says, are you a Roman, is it legal to do this to a Roman citizen who hasn't yet been condemned? And look at what the Roman, what, look at the Claudius Lysias' response to him. His response is not just to say, not simply to say, yes, it's not, it's not legal, and yeah, fine, you made a good point there. What he says to him is very interesting. He says to him, I had to pay quite a bit of money for my Roman citizenship, implying that that also is the way that Paul acquired his Roman citizenship. There's an implied threat here. 
The implied threat here is if you weren't rich, I could beat you. You're lucky you came into money because the law is not applied equally to the rich and the poor in this case. If Paul hadn't been born a Roman citizen and if he would have been poor and not acquire Roman citizenship, he would have been flayed out on that rack and beaten. And Claudius Lysus too, some said, well, you must be pretty rich to have acquired a Roman citizenship. And Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen by birth. And that's when they say, okay, well, we need to stop what we're doing here. The law is not necessarily applied equally. The point is that systems of justice are corrupted by human sin so that the law is not applied equally. And Paul knows this. And Paul knows his rights, and thankfully he's spared from this torture. But we see injustice here in the system where a rich man can buy a citizenship and be spared torture that a poor man would be forced to endure. And so we've only gone through very quickly some of the, I mean, you can go, your homework is to go and read these three chapters on your own and actually study this for yourself. We see in these chapters, I've just touched on it this morning, the righteous role of government to restrain evil and anarchy. Yet there's also within this the sinful corruption of government by humanity that may lead to injustice. Big point, right? All that to say this, remember the big point. Get you back here. All you guys are like, oh, your eyes just all went, oh, the big point is that Jesus is using both the system of justice and the injustices embedded in the system to bring about his purposes so that Paul will testify in Jerusalem and then testify in Rome. Jesus appears to Paul in the midst of all this and says, this is what will happen to you. You will be my witness in Jerusalem in front of kings and in front of governments. And you will be my witnesses in Rome in front of Caesar. Jesus uses both. So how then are Christians to orient ourselves toward the legal system? A couple things in closing. As Christians embedded in this system of Canada, we are to know our rights, know the laws, and to know those who accuse us. It could, I could have done a whole different sermon, and maybe it would have been a better sermon, on how Paul games the system, in a sense. As he, Paul's not passive through this. right? Paul... Paul knows his rights. He knows precisely. Right as he's on the table, Paul knows when to play the I'm a Roman card. Right? When he's in front of the Sanhedrin and he knows that some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees, different groups, warring camps kind of within Judaism, Paul knows when to play the I'm just a Pharisee who believes in the resurrection of the dead card and that causes a whole bunch of commotion within among themselves. Paul knows when to go to the crowd and to speak in Aramaic and say, look, I'm just a good Jewish man like you who believes in the hope that was promised our fathers. And that hope has been realized in Jesus. And so Paul, as he's going through the system, he's not ignorant of the system. He knows the system. He knows his rights. He knows his accusers. He knows how to speak to them. He knows how to get them to kind of show their own internal inconsistencies. And so as Christians, we're not just called to, to be passive, but we can be wise in defending ourselves in our rights when we are accused or oppressed. Secondly, and this is from other parts of the New Testament as well, we are to pray and to promote just laws and just law enforcement systems, particularly that protect the rights of the accused and restrain corruption. We can't just be people who just shout, law and order, law and order, law and order, but who trample on the rights of those who are accused because we don't know when it's going to be us who are in those boats. But the main point I want to hit home 
is this. Christ uses all things for his purposes, even imperfect systems of justice. There may be some of you even today, or there may be some of you here today that in your life will be facing injustice even in the system. God's providential rule over the nations and sovereign unfolding of his purposes in history include his direction of both just and unjust systems of government We do not have simple answers of this as a Christian. We have to understand that God in his providential unfolding through history uses both good and sinful men. He uses both just systems of government and unjust systems of government to bring about his purposes for humanity. The clearest place this is brought up in all of scripture is in one of those books that probably a lot of us haven't read for a while. It's the book of Habakkuk. All right? This is your other homework assignment for this week. Read the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1 starts out where Habakkuk is seeing the wickedness happening in Jerusalem and Judea. And he's saying to God, he prays out to God and he says, God, how long will you allow this to go on for? People have denied your word. They've set it aside. And he says, when are you going to do something? Because he speaks and he, he says, when are you going to do something about the violence that is filling Jerusalem? Because no one is paying attention to your law and justice, he says, is being trampled. And so Habakkuk's looking around at this unjust system in Jerusalem, saying, God, when will you do something about this injustice in the system? And God responds to him and says, I will show you what I'm about to do. I'm going to do something in your day, Habakkuk, that no one would have thought. And Habakkuk's like, what are you going to do, God? What are you going to do? And God said, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. He calls them the the other other name, the Chaldeans. Chaldeans. He says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to swoop in like an eagle upon their prey, and it's going to destroy all the unjust systems of Judea. And Habakkuk then says to God, what? They're more wicked than we are. Their system of injustice is far more unjust than those who you're sleeping away by them. God, why would you, how could you do that? How could you use the wicked to punish us? They're worse than us. And the Lord answers back, and I'm paraphrasing the rest of the book. The Lord answers back and he says, I know, Habakkuk, write this down. He actually tells Habakkuk, write this down for future generations, write this down. And he goes and he details and he delineates all the wickedness in the hearts of man and in the systems that they've created. He says, I know, Habakkuk, all the earth is corrupt. All, he says, will be exposed. This is where we get that verse that the Chinese congregation sings at the beginning of every service where they said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's from Habakkuk. It's from the end of the section where he says, Habakkuk, let me tell you, write this down so everybody is clear. All humanity and all the systems they create are unjust, wicked. All will be exposed and all the earth will be silent before me. But write this down, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk stops complaining and he starts praying for God's mercy to restrain his wrath. He says, oh Lord, we've heard of your deeds. We stand in awe of your ways. But in your wrath, remember mercy. And he calls out to God for compassion because God is just to judge and to sweep away us all. And Habakkuk's a really, really, really important book. 
Because Habakkuk is the book that Paul uses in the book of Romans to explain the entire gospel. He says, yes, agreed with Habakkuk. The apostle Paul says, Habakkuk did what he was supposed to do and he wrote this down and there is corruption, there is sinfulness, there is injustice, there is violence in the heart of man and in every system we create. But he goes in the book of Romans an entire expansion on that promise that God gives Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith. And that God is the one who is just to condemn and God is the one who justifies the wicked through the propitiation he gave forth in his son, Jesus Christ. And so the message of the book of Habakkuk is when we are ensconced in these systems of injustice, we're to look at the injustice and the wickedness of our entire heart and it should drive us to God's mercy, drive us to God's compassion and drive us to the gospel. Jesus uses in his sovereign rule of the nations just and unjust systems, good and wicked men, to bring about his purposes that all will be silent before a holy God. And that's the fourth thing, last thing today. Entrust our souls to the one and only just king. And I'm just going to close the sermon with the words of Habakkuk, the final chapter of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3. This is Habakkuk. He stopped complaining and he started praising God. He stops asking God questions about God's rule of the nations and his, his, his injustice, how he allows the justice to reign. And he starts praising God because he starts seeing that it's, his own heart is where the wickedness is. And he needs to call on the mercy of God. And Habakkuk says in 3.16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and yields, fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Christian, when injustice floods like a sea over our culture and over your soul, entrust yourself. Call upon the name of the Lord. Entrust yourself to the only one who is the just king. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We, we are just simple men, simple women, living in a culture, living in a system where at times, God, we see we're very thankful and we defend the government. We, we, we're very thankful for the systems of justice that, pervert, that preserve and protect the weak, that, that preserve order and that, uh, and that punish the wicked. We're, we're thankful, God, we live in a country with such laws. But God, we see the laws applied unequally. Lord, we see the laws uh, allowing things that are immoral or, or disallowing things that, are, that you've called us to do. And so God, we call out to you when we see the oppression of humanity, we call out to you that we would wait upon your justice and call upon your mercy. I pray today for anybody in here who struggles with this idea of, of, of your sovereign rule over the nations and 
and, and how you allow justice to, and, and injustice to, um, to, to often rule over the nations. God, I pray that we would not see things with a you know, five-year vision or a 10-year vision, but we would see, Lord Jesus, that you reign now from heaven and your kingdom will indeed come and it will be righteousness will flow like a river, justice like a stream. And we wait upon that day. In your name.